Good morning, church family. It's great to see everyone. I believe the scripture is going to be posted today. Um, Matthew 22, 35 through 40. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with, his, with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, spirit, and mind, and this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. It's the word of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hi, good morning, everyone. Um, my name is Alicia Lee, and I'm one of the elders here at LMCC, and I am so pleased to welcome everyone here this morning. Um, so we are in a sermon series to start the year called Partnership in the Gospel. What does that mean? Well, one of the neat things about this season uh, for our church is you don't just get one person standing up here every Sunday morning um, teaching. You basically have a handful of us who take it in turn. So that means you're going to get a few different perspectives on different elements of what partnership in the gospel means. And you're going to have the, the opportunity to take it in and soak it up and hear what the Lord maybe has for you in it. And this morning, this is the third message in the partnership in the gospel series, and I feel like it's a message that the Lord has been writing on my heart for a long time for this church, so I'm just really grateful for the opportunity to share it with you all. All right, so this morning, I'd actually like to be a little provocative, and um, I'd like to start with this. Van Gogh said that there is no blue without yellow and orange because they're complementary colors, you could almost call them opposites. And I think what he was trying to say is that to understand what something is, you have to understand what it's not. And so that's where I really want to be today um, as we keep going in this partnership in the gospel series. I want to take this approach and I want to ask what it's not. Um, and that's going to be the first of three questions that I'm going to pose today. And these are going to be the three sections of the message. Um, so is the, can you put the slide up there? Um, the first of the three questions is what, is, what is the opposite of partnership, right? And the answer, I think, is autonomy, and I'm going to spend most of our time on this first question, answering this first question, because I think that once we know what it's not, um, then I think we'll be ready to answer the second question, which is what then is partnership? And I think we're going to see that partnership means the great commandment, which Paul just read, love God and love each other. And I think we're going to be able to say that with more confidence, with more depth. And then we'll move on to the final question, question three, which is how do we do it? How do we enter into this partnership? Because it's one thing to know what it is, it's another thing to do it. Um, and my focus here will be, um, in this third question, my focus will be on the second commandment, on loving each other. So that is our roadmap for this morning. All right, so question number one, what is the opposite of partnership in the gospel? If partnership means doing it together, if it means depending on each other, you know, if it means dependence and interdependence, one party bringing something, you know, another party bringing something else, then the opposite of partnership would be doing it alone, right? It would mean autonomy. 
Now here's a question for you guys. When I say that word, autonomy, how do you feel? What does it evoke in you? I'm gonna guess that your inner man or inner woman nods with satisfaction, right? Yes, autonomy. I love it, I want it. I love it and I want more of it, right? I'm gonna guess that when you hear the word autonomy that you start thinking, yeah, I wanna be my own boss. I wanna do what I wanna do. And you think freedom, right? So if you're like me and that word autonomy gives you the warm and fuzzies, then what I'm about to say is really going to be a bummer for you, <laughs> which is I think autonomy might just be at the root of all of our problems. All right, so I'd like to lead us in looking at this idea of autonomy being at the root of all of our problems in three different ways. First, through what the Bible tells us. Second, through my experience as a mother. And then three, through our collective experience as New Yorkers. All right, number one, what does the Bible tell us about autonomy? Well, in Genesis, it says that God speaks the universe into existence, including mankind. God created Adam and then Eve and then put them in charge and put them in charge of the Garden of Eden, which was filled with beautiful trees. And God said, you're going to take care of this garden. And you can eat from it. It's going to sustain you. You can eat from this garden, and you can eat from the fruit of any tree. Oh, except one tree. Just this one tree here in the middle. It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat from this tree, then you're going to die. Well, we all know what happens next. Satan comes, and he tempts Eve. And she and Adam do the one thing that God says they cannot do because it's not enough for them to work and enjoy and be sustained by this beautiful garden. There's one tree they can't eat from and they just have to be free to eat from it despite the consequence, despite God saying you will certainly die, not it doesn't taste so good or you're going to have indigestion. No, you're going to die. Do you think that this tree here was more beautiful than any of the rest of the trees? Do you think the fruit from this tree was more delicious looking than any of the rest of the fruit? Maybe. I don't know, but this is what I do know. God said one limit, one boundary, and Adam and Eve can't abide it. So at the first temptation, they do the one thing they're not supposed to do. They eat from the tree, and we all know what happens. Fear and shame. They cover themselves, hide from God, but there is no hiding from God. As promised, man would die, but not right away, not before a lifetime of struggle to scratch a living from the land. That's what the Bible tells us. Not before struggling in marriage and not before struggling to have children, all from that one act of autonomy. Now, we can stop right here, and we could have a pretty good picture of what the Bible says about our love of autonomy and what happens from it, but I actually want to continue in Genesis. I want to continue into the story of Cain and Abel because I think it can add a lot of depth to our understanding. All right, so the next thing that happens is Adam and Eve have kids. Cain is the firstborn, he is a farmer, and Abel is the secondborn, and he becomes a shepherd. And it comes time for them to make their offerings to God. Cain brings some of his crop to God. 
Abel brings some of the portions from his flock. Um, And the Bible takes care to say there is a really big difference between these two offerings. The Bible says that Cain brought some of the first fruits of the soil. Some of the first fruits of the soil. Now, in my mind, I picture that the harvest has come in. In my mind, I picture that maybe Cain has it all spread out in front of him, and he does something like this. Okay, all right, God can have that one. These two. God can have these two over here, maybe a few more over here. All right, that's good. That's good for God. That should do it. And then on the other hand, you have Abel. And here are the words that the Bible uses about Abel's offering. It says his offering was comprised of the fat portions. The fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. Now, I didn't grow up on the Dutton Ranch, but I know what that means. It means the juiciest cut. It means the best. It means the first fruits. God rejects Cain's gift and and accepts Abel's gift. But why? Is it because God loves meat more than vegetables? No, it's because Cain held back the best for himself. Even as he gives an offering, even as he knows he ought to give an offering, he wanted to be in control. He wanted to write his destiny. I'm going to be satisfied. I'm going to be sustained. I don't want to rely on God. I'll give God what I want, and I'll keep what I want. I want autonomy. Now, what God says, Cain, what God says to Cain next is really interesting, and I want you to really pay attention here. Right? Cain holds back from God. He wants to be in control. And then God says this to him. He says, sin is crouching at your door. Not you just sinned against me, but sin is coming. And it does, because the next thing that happens is Cain calls Abel out into the field, and Cain kills Abel. Are we seeing the pattern yet? All right, let's recap. Adam and Eve want to eat the fruit. They become disconnected from God, but actually not just from God, from each other. Because once we read Cain and Abel, at least for me, I can see more clearly another dimension of disconnect. This one between Adam and Eve. When they realize they're naked, it's not just in front of God, it's naked to each other, right? And then there's the blame, the woman made me eat from the tree. Marriage falls under a curse. And then Cain and Abel are born. And the message gets really pointed because they're the first set of brothers in creation and they were created for unity. Just like Adam and Eve, they were created for unity. One's a farmer, the other's a shepherd. They were created to work together, but Cain kills his brother. We seek our autonomy, and it leads to disconnection from God. That's my death first. And it is followed by disconnection from one another, our death second. All right, let's step out of Genesis now, and we'll get back to the here and the now. Now, I was going to show you guys a picture of my kids, um, but the TV is not working. So um, I'm just going to tell you about them, because I want you to know that they're really cute, 
and that they're good kids, because I'm about to tell you a couple of kind of unflattering stories about them. Um, so um, let me tell you about them. Um, my husband Jason and I have three kids. Um, our eldest is Noah. He's six years old, and he loves chess and Legos and martial arts. Um, and then we have Lucy. She is four, and she loves Elsa, um, Frozen. She loves ballet, and she wants to be an artist when she grows up. Um, definitely didn't get that from me. And um, the baby is Grace. She's one. And and she is named after my mother-in-law, Grace, who is a fierce lover of Jesus. So those are my three kids, Noah, Lucy, and Grace. Um, we looked at what Genesis tells us about autonomy, and now I want to share a little bit about my experience as a parent dealing with my kids' autonomy. Um, at least at this age so far. Some of you have older kids, and so um, you have a lot more stories than I do, but this is where I am. Um, so first, um, my six-year-old Noah goes to school in the West Village, and we live here in Tribeca. And on nice weather days, he rides his scooter home, and it's a really nice way to get home from school. It's a nice section of Hudson Street. It's lined with trees, and he has a nice scooter. He used to have one of those three-wheel scooters, like two in the front, one in the back for good balance. Um, but then he saw the older kids had two wheel scooters, so he asked for one, and we got him one for his sixth birthday, and um, he can just fly in this thing. I mean, there is no chance of keeping up with a kid on a two-wheel scooter, and as we leave his school every afternoon, um, I remind him, you can go ahead of me. That's totally fine. Just one thing. One thing, don't cross any streets without me. And he nods his head, okay, and he puts on his helmet, and he starts to go, and even from the back of him, and I only see the back of him. Um, it is just pure joy. He loves the freedom. He loves the independence. Like, the wind is blowing in his face, and um, it feels so good for him. And, you know, he'll turn his head around and make sure I'm not too far behind, and he'll slow down as he approaches the street, and he'll wait for me to cross most of the time. But one time, we're leaving his school, and I can tell he's just feeling a little extra confident little extra adventurous, just a little extra all around. And he went further ahead of me than he has ever gone. And I can barely see him. And I start shouting his name, but he can't hear me. And then he reaches the street. And even before he does it, I know he's going to do it. He crosses without me. And as soon as he gets to the other side, he whips his head around to look at me. And he's got cartoon character eyes. And I can see the bubble above his head. Um, if he were an older boy, it might be an expletive. But like for him, it was, uh-oh. Right? First, it was scary for him. You know, he's a super confident little six-year-old. He thought he could cross the street. But once he did it, I think he got why he's not supposed to do it. It was scary. And he felt afraid. And he was afraid of my reaction. I could feel his cartoon character eyes sort of scanning my face to see how mad I was. You know, lots of fear for him in that moment. All right, that's the first story. The second story is um, not so much a specific story, but I just want to tell you a little bit about the relationship between my two older kids, Noah and Lucy. Um, so we had Lucy when Noah was two years old, and um, after the first day in the hospital, we had Noah come and visit us. And he was only two, but he knew this was a special moment, and he knew this was a special little person in his life. He toddled right up to the bassinet without us asking him to or telling him to, and um, he approached his baby sister, and he just watched her for a while. And I have all this on video. Um, and so carefully, so gently, he reached out one hand, and he kind of just touched her cheek. It was a really beautiful moment, um, but it didn't last for very long. 
because we brought sweet little Lucy home, and the first time he sees me holding his baby sister, he comes zooming up to me so angry, no, no woo-woo, that's what he called her, he couldn't say her name, he was a very slow talker, he said, no woo-woo, mommy Noah, and he looks around for the nearest grown-up, and he says, daddy woo-woo, mommy Noah, daddy woo-woo. <laughs> now, over time, he would come to see that she wasn't just a threat. She was a playmate, and she was the best playmate and the best roommate. They share a room now, and they need each other to go to sleep happily at night. But she's still a threat, a threat to his control of the TV remote, a threat to getting the best snacks, a threat to mom and dad's attention. And one of our biggest frustrations as parents, me and Jason, is just mediating that conflict and watching it boil over into physical conflict sometimes, um, to grabbing and pushing and hitting. All right. Tribeca might not be the Garden of Eden, right? Scooting too far might not be eating forbidden fruit. And pushing his sister is not the same thing as killing a brother. But isn't it all the same? Right? The Bible is God's story to us about these relationships. On his side, on God's side, perfect love. And on ours, there's love too. There is. But also this desire for autonomy. Right? A desire so great that we scoot further than we should, despite love, despite consequences. And out of this imperfect connection is born jealousy and comparison and competition, an inability to trust our creator's love, an, an inability to trust that it could be big enough or complete enough to account for a brother with a better offering, a new baby sister, fill in the blank. Is this starting to resonate? with some of you? Can you see yourself in this yet? All right, let me bring it all the way home. I think every person in this room here in downtown New York City knows a thing or two about the, about the desire for autonomy. I came to New York City to get closer to the Lord, said nobody ever. <laughs> Not that it doesn't happen, not that it didn't happen for me, and I know it happened for a lot of you, but that's not why people come to live in New York City. More likely than not, if you live in New York City, you are relieved to leave God behind in whatever family you grew up in. You are relieved to leave God behind in whatever suburban church you grew up going to. How about this one? I came to New York City to develop meaningful relationships also said nobody ever. Not that it doesn't happen, it happened to me, and I know it happened for a lot of you, but that's not why people come to live in New York City. Right? How many of you have to get on a flight to see your family? You love your families, we love our families, but you know what we love more? To live on our own terms. So we left our people behind and we moved here. We live in nuclear families, not extended families. And at almost nine million people, this is the most populated city in the United States by a mile. We literally live in boxes side by side, one on top, because we have to. But all those people, it doesn't mean more relationship, it means more anonymity. We don't know each other. 
I can hear my neighbor fighting with somebody in her kitchen, and it's as if she's standing in my kitchen, and I don't know her kids' names, right? Like, we don't know each other, and if we're honest, we kind of prefer it that way. We want to see people, but only when we want to see them. We want to see people, but only how we want to see them, and they have to be the right people, right? And we wonder why we're lonely, So why did we all come here? Probably for a lot of us, it's work. If I could describe the culture of New York City in a word, I'd say work. What do you do? What do you do? We came here for work and for more autonomy in our work because there's plenty of work elsewhere. But there's so much opportunity here that it means you can do what you want for work. You can do what you want and you can work for who you want to work for. Chances are, if work is not going well for you right now, if you don't feel so good about work right now, there's a pretty good chance it's because you don't like who you work for. If only she weren't my manager, right? He doesn't understand what I bring to the table. Less than 10% of Manhattan is in the office five days a week anymore because we don't want to see our bosses. We don't want to see each other, and now we don't have to. New York City is the capital of autonomy, All this autonomy. We should feel so free. We should feel so unburdened. Life should be easy breezy. But is it how it feels to any of you? The thing is, God wants autonomy for us. He does. He designed us for it. He designed us for it. He wanted us to rule over the earth. Right? He designed us for autonomy in our relationships. He said that we should leave our mothers and fathers and start our own families, but we didn't want autonomy on his terms. We want it on our terms. It's what, it's what got us to this place where everything is cursed, right? Work, marriage, childbirth, the Bible says that. But instead of learning from our mistake, we keep thinking it's the answer. More autonomy. More autonomy must be the answer. Now, is this resonating? All right, so if we can agree that the opposite of partnership is autonomy, and that the Bible talks about autonomy leading to our disconnection from God and from each other, then I think now we're ready to move on to the next question, which is question two. What then is partnership? I probably could have just started here, right? I probably could have just started well with, well, I would define partnership in the gospel as the great commandment. Paul read it to us this morning, right? But I'm going to read it one more time. This is from Matthew chapter 22. Jesus says, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. It fits, right? Partnership in the gospel, it's about loving God and loving each other. We could have just started there. But I hope by looking at what partnership is not, um, and by looking at autonomy from the time of creation to now, and how it's never served us, I hope we can say with a little bit more confidence that yes, this is what partnership in the gospel means. And I hope that perhaps we might consider that partnership is where freedom might actually be found, not in autonomy. 
All right, so let's talk about the word love for a second. Um, we see this word love in uh, Matthew chapter 22 uh, a couple of times. Love is the verb in the great commandment. It's what we're supposed to do, love God, love each other. Um, the New Testament was written in Greek. And C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Four Loves that digs deep into the four different Greek words for love that are found in the New Testament. Um, they are a family love versus a friendship love versus a romantic love versus God love. In English, we have just one word love. And we tend to use it, I think, primarily in a couple of ways. Um, first is kind of in line with our feelings of romantic affection. You know, I fell in love with him. Um, and then the second way that I think we tend to use it is in almost a hyperbolic way about stuff, right? Like, I love your maroon sweater, or um, I loved that book. But to understand what the great commandment is really calling us to, I think we need to know the word, the specific word that the Bible uses for love here in the great commandment. It's the Greek word agape, which is God love. Family love, friendship love, romance love, all of that is love. And it has an important place in the Bible, in our lives. But here, in the great commandment, it's agape love. Agape love, which has a meaning of choice and sacrifice. And guess what? The Bible doesn't just use it in the first part of the great commandment when it talks about us and God. It uses it in the second part too. The part where we're called to love each other. All right, so to understand agape love, that love of choice and of sacrifice, we have to know what the gospel is. I know that's an intimidating word for a lot of people, the gospel, but it just means good news. All right, I want to tell you another story about my son Noah that will maybe help you understand the gospel if you're new to it. All right, so I talked about how um, we've had to deal with conflict between Noah and his sister Lucy, and about a year ago, we really hit a rough patch with it. I mean, thankfully, we're on the other side of it now, I think, but last year, man, we were dealing with Noah pushing and hitting his little sister, and it was awful, and we really wanted to draw a hard and firm boundary around that behavior, and so we tried a, different, a few different ways of doing that, and one of the things we tried was a few times we gave Noah a timeout. Well, one time, we gave him a timeout, and he goes up to his room, and he's in there for about five minutes, maybe longer, and I don't hear anything. And I start to wonder what's going on in there. So I turned on, um, there's a baby camera in there, and I can see the kids through uh, a monitor. I turned it on, and that's when I heard him. My poor little baby in there, he's pacing around the room, and he's muttering to himself, I'm so bad. I'm a bad boy. I'm so bad. And I didn't say those words to him. I didn't say those words, but those were the words of fear and shame that came out of his heart and out of his little baby mouth. And I shut off the camera and I ran upstairs and I didn't know what I was gonna say to him. Didn't know what I was gonna say, but I gave him a hug. And I found the words of the gospel just pouring out of my heart and out of my mouth. You're not bad. 
You're not bad. You are so good. You are such a good boy, but good boys make mistakes. And you can make a hundred mistakes, or you can make a thousand mistakes, and I will still love you, and I will never, ever, ever think you are bad. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the message that God has been chasing with us, chasing us with, since the beginning. In Genesis, in Genesis it's written that God created mankind, and before we did or said a single thing, God said it was very good. Phil said that in his message a couple weeks ago, and it hit right here. God made us, and he said, we are good. Then Adam and Eve made a mistake, just like my son Noah. And just like my son Noah, they felt fear and shame. They tried to cover up their shame with fig leaves, but it was insufficient Genesis said that God had to clothe them. He had to cover up their fear and their shame before they could walk and work and be together in his presence again. And the story continued with the first set of brothers, Cain and Abel, born to live and work in unity. But we would continue to make mistakes, mankind. Um, and even as Cain suffered the consequences of killing his brother, when he cries out in fear and shame, God covers him. He says to Cain, I'll protect you. And all of this was just foreshadowing what was to come, which is this. God, in the ultimate expression of God love, agape love, that love of choice and of sacrifice, he chose to come to this world as man, as Jesus, his son, to die for us. When we place our faith in Jesus, we are all covered. 100 mistakes or 1,000 mistakes, all forgiven. The slate completely wiped clean for us so that we could be restored to our God. All right, the third and final question for today is how do we enter into that partnership? Well, the first thing we do is we claim the gospel for ourselves. In Romans chapter 10, it says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's it. The gospel is now yours. But it doesn't end there. Because as his people, we are called to do his will, which is summed up in the great commandment, to love people and to love each other, not with friendship love or familial love, or romantic love, although all those loves can be a part of it, but agape love, a love of choice and of sacrifice, the same choice and sacrifice that saved us. All right, now with the remaining few minutes that I have with you today, I want to shine a big spotlight on the second part of the great commandment. Loving God is the first part, right? It's primary, but we won't be able to keep the great commandment until we also understand and keep the second part of that great commandment. And in some ways, it's the harder one. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 22, where Jesus declared the great commandment. What were the circumstances? What, what was the setup? Well, he was there with the Pharisees, and um, the Pharisees were a Jewish group who opposed Jesus. They were frequently challenging him and questioning him. And in Matthew ch chapter 22, one of them, the Bible calls him an expert in the law, tests Jesus with this question. Teacher, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And that's when he declares the great commandment. And I'm guessing 
that Jesus really surprises them with his answer. First, because his answer is strictly in line with the law. The first commandment is a direct quote from Deuteronomy. And the second commandment is a direct quote from Leviticus. And the Pharisees, especially the expert in the law, would have known that. And I think he would have been surprised that Jesus was totally locked into the law. And here's the other thing that I think surprised the Pharisees. The expert in the law had asked for the greatest commandment. And Jesus answered with two clearly distinct commandments that he joined together in partnership to form one greatest commandment, one will of God for our lives. When we talk about partnership in the gospel, we're not just talking about that interdependence between us and the Lord. You know, we're not just talking about the interdependence between you and me. We're talking about the interdependence of those two sets of relationships working together to bring us into the will of God. Here's another question. Love the Lord your God. That's primary. That's the first thing. But what if we're not there yet? Do we hold off on loving our neighbor? I remember a time in my life when the gospel hadn't really become real in my heart yet. I had been baptized, but I couldn't really claim to love God using really any definition of love, not even the most casual one. And I really couldn't claim his love for me. And I remember once during this time in my life, someone said to me, Alicia, God loves you, you know. And I just remember cringing. Now, I remember um, eventually reaching a point in my life when I was ready to seek God. I hadn't found him yet, but I was looking for him. And as I looked, I found myself, my husband and I, serving at a soup kitchen every Saturday morning for almost three years. Um, and after months of doing it, literally every Saturday morning for hours, whether the weather was nice or it was not, um, I remember one morning just looking out at the hundreds of people that we were serving and just suddenly, out of nowhere, being completely emotionally and physically overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit just moving and ministering in that place. I wouldn't have used those words then, but, but I know that's what it was. And I knew even then, without knowing how I knew it, that the feeling of overwhelm that I had just experienced was a taste of God's love for those people, which I got to access and experience for myself through my love service. And it brought me closer to God's heart. And my love for God grew. Now, around the same time, I was going to my community group every single week. I wouldn't miss a meeting. And I wouldn't have said I was loving or serving anyone, but looking back on it, by just showing up, I think I was serving people around me because I was asking really sincere and hard questions like, why does the Bible say this? Why does God do that? And I think other people around me had the same questions and I think we were serving each other and my seeking encouraged their seeking. Anyway, that choice to commit and to serve with my participation, well, it grew into love. It grew into praying for each other, into showing up for each other. Now, over the last 10 years of going to and then eventually leading community groups at this church, 
through life's ups and downs and through this church's ups and downs, I definitely haven't gotten it all right, but I have chosen to love. And you see, for me, God's love is primary, but it did not become tangible and it did not become real or mine until I chose to love others. All right, I've asked a lot of questions today, but I have one more that I will leave you with. Have you ever wondered why Adam and Eve didn't have kids until after the fall? I've been thinking about that lately. And I've been thinking that maybe it's because we're a little bit like Van Gogh, that we can't understand blue without orange. That we can't understand darkness, or sorry, we can't understand light without understanding darkness. That maybe we can't know God until we know that we don't have him or that we're disconnected for him. Um, Here's what I know for sure. No sin is too great, no distance too far, no number of years of pretending that God doesn't exist can keep him from advancing his plan for us, which is to find us and to love us and for us to love him and to love each other. All right, let's pray together. Lord, um, we confess that we've always wanted to do things our way. Um, Lord, even for those of us who've surrendered our lives to you, we don't get it right, not every day and not every way. And so, Lord, my prayer for all of us this morning is that you would grant us the courage, Lord, to seek a new way, Lord, your way. Um, And my my prayer, Lord, uh, for your people is that we would all find the joy and freedom that you have promised for us in your way. I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.